Well, let's open our Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This morning we're on verses 17 to 19 in our study through Hebrews. Any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to children's church. Any kids who'd like to head out to children's church, kindergarten to second grade. We're on Hebrews 11. It's on page 1192 if you're using a pew Bible and are unfamiliar with Hebrews. Well, I'd like to start us off this morning with a mental exercise, kind of a a mental fill in the blanks. So what I want to do is I want to say a sentence and then I'll stop the sentence halfway through and then I want you to fill in the blank for the rest of the sentence and, and just see how this goes. So here's the sentence. It goes like this. Dear God, I will do anything you ask as long as you... What, what's, what goes in the blank? Dear God, I trust you and I will obey you and I'll do anything you want as long as you... What? <laughs> do something for me. Thank you for the honest answer. <laughs> as long as you do something for me. Right. As long as you don't send me to a foreign country without good services where I have to be a missionary. As long as you make sure my kids are happy, healthy, well-educated, and financially prosperous, and and never have any discomfort in their lives. As long as you, right, and the list goes on, as long as you remove this painful difficulty I'm going through right now, and as long as you do that, then I'll do whatever it is that you ask. Do we really trust God? Do I really trust God? Do I really obey Him? Have I really surrendered everything to Him? Or is my life with Him more like some kind of contractual obligation, you know, where there's all this lawyerly fine print? You know, well, well, God, I I know you're asking me to do that, but if you'll notice here on page 6, paragraph 3, subsection 2, it does say in the uh, six-point font right there that, (coughs) that you wouldn't do that. Or are we surrendered to Him? Do we really trust Him? Well, Today we come to the story of Abraham. And if you've been here the last couple of Sundays, we've been working through Abraham's story. And, uh, and today we come to the, the great test in Abraham's life, the great moment of faith testing. We've seen that two Sundays ago that God called Abraham to leave the, uh, his homeland and go to a different land. And by faith, Abraham went to that strange country and left behind his fatherland. And then last Sunday we saw that God promised Abraham that He would give Abraham uh, a child. And through that child, there would be great offspring. And out of that offspring, which we know now as the people of Israel, that all the nations would be blessed. And so we have this promise. And so really, the story of Abraham, the main through line, uh, is narratively speaking, is the promise of Isaac. And so Abraham waits and waits and waits. And God keeps promising and promising. And Abraham gets older and older until finally he and his wife are beyond childbearing years. And they've never been had to, able to have kids anyway. And then finally, God comes through and gives the promised son Isaac. Well, today we come to the final major movement in Abraham's story. Because today, now God calls Abraham to sacrifice that very son for whom he was waiting. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11. 
And let's see how Abraham finishes the sentence. God, I'll do whatever you ask as long as you... Dot, dot, dot. Verse 17. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That's a heck of a Father's Day text, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't plan it for it to happen on the stage. Just That's the way the calendar worked out. Interesting. Let's go back and read the original Abraham story. Put a bookmark here in Hebrews 11. We're going to do a, a little bit of dancing back and forth between Hebrews 11 and Genesis 22. So if you wouldn't mind bookmarking Hebrews 11, we'll do some flip-flopping. Go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and let's read about this amazing test. Actually, let's go to Genesis 21 and read the birth of Isaac because last Sunday we talked about the promise of Isaac, but we never actually got to Isaac's birth. We never read that. So let's just read that so we kind of complete that cycle of Isaac finally being born. Look at Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what He had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah had bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham, that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So you get this amazing conclusion. A, you know, a miracle child is born by God's promise. And so here's the child. He's born. And if you were making the movie of Abraham, this would be a logical place to sort of roll the credits, fade the, you know, the, the sort of triumphant music at the end. The, the whole narrative is complete. We have the leaving, we have the promise, the waiting, the sojourning. And if you're sort of tracking a narrative arc, this is the, the final part of the story. And you'd think the movie would be over here. But in this movie, there's a dramatic twist that you would never have expected up to this point. You would think this would be the great conclusion. Yay, the baby's here. God finally fulfilled His promise. Roll credits. No. There's another like 20 minutes to the movie that we weren't expecting. Because after this comes the real, unexpected, unforeseen climax of this story that nobody would have guessed. It's in chapter 22, verse 1. Some time later, Abraham or, or God tested Abraham. And He said to him, Abraham, here, here I am, He replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. It's difficult to know how to even get your head around that command. Uh, you, you know, I, I, you try to break it down sort of in a scholarly, exegetical way, but just as a, a human being, let alone as a parent or a dad, it, it is tough just to get past that command. Go sacrifice your son. I mean, I can't even, my mind can't even conceptualize this command. You know, to let alone think of imagining losing one of my children, which I can't even hardly go there. Some of you may have experienced that. I mean, it's a parent's worst nightmare. 
But God is asking Abraham to do something that is beyond the worst nightmare. Not just to lose a child, but to, to sacrifice a child. I mean, I just, it doesn't even compute for me. I mean, and, and look at the language, verse 2 again. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. So there's a recognition on God's part that this is, on earth, this is Abraham's greatest treasure, is his son Isaac. This is his greatest, most precious possession, more than his flocks and herds and all of his servants and all of his tents and camels. You know, this is the one thing he has that is the most amazing. This miracle son promised of God, born to him in his old age. I mean, there's nothing greater than this. And God says, I know that, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. That raises another question of why would God demand a human sacrifice? That is also jarring. Because that doesn't happen anywhere else in the Old Testament. In fact, whenever human sacrifice is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's always condemned as an evil expression of pagan idolatry. The Canaanites sacrificed children. The, the horrible peoples around Israel who were godless and, and pagan and immoral, they sacrificed their children. Uh, sometimes they would build a city and archaeologists have found underneath the cornerstone of a city they'll find the bones of a child. Because when they laid the foundation stone of a city, in order to really ensure that the gods would be happy, they would sacrifice you know, their own kid and put it under the foundation stone of the city. So you know, that's what the evil pagans did. But God's people are never commanded and never a part of child sacrifice or human sacrifice. So that's why this text is like, it's, it just sticks out. Like, this is completely unique in the Old Testament. Why is God doing this? Even if we say, well, it's a test... Yeah, but he's, he's testing him to do something that God just does not approve of. So what is this? And then, of course, it's not just that it's a son. There's not just that visceral level. Nor is it just that it's a human sacrifice, which is also jarring. But then, it's the, of all the people to sacrifice, it's the son of the promise. It's the kid they've been waiting for. The whole story is built up to this child, and now God says sacrifice him. That's what the writer of Hebrews picks up on. If you go back, you know, keep a finger here in Genesis 22. Go back to Hebrews 11:18 real quick. Verse 17. By faith Abraham, when tested, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Here we go. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So this is the real narrative tension. This is the, the height of the plot conflict, is that now this child is being sacrificed. So the command of God seems to be, apparently, is in direct opposition to the promises of God. God has said, I will do something for you. And now God is saying, you know, destroy that hope that I've been telling you about for decades. It's just amazing. When, when God told Abraham to leave his fatherland, Abraham had to abandon his past. But when God says, sacrifice your son, he's abandoning all his hope for the future. And so what do you do in that kind of situation? If God were to, to demand a sacrifice of this magnitude... And look what Abraham does. It's just absolutely stunning. Verse 3. Early the next morning. I'm back in Genesis 22. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, 
he set out for the place God had told him about. I love that how the whole thing starts in verse 3. Early the next morning, he was up. There was no delaying. There was no, well, you know, let me go and have a time of fasting and prayer and let me get some advice and I need to read some books. It's just God says it. And so he's up. He's like, I'm going. I'm going to do what God says. He's up early. While the rest of the camp is sleeping, Abraham is already in motion to obey God's Word, to do what God says. So he gets his servants together and he puts the wood on the donkey and they're setting out on this journey. God, I'll do anything you say as long as you... dot dot dot. And it appears that Abraham simply didn't have a condition at the end of that sentence. Or maybe Abraham's sentence would be, God, I'll do whatever you say as long as you tell me to. You know, but whatever it is, there was no condition. He just did what God said. And, and I just find that so amazing. I think so many times, again, we have conditions, we have expectations, we have this sort of, well, God, I'll do this as long as you do that. You know, a quid pro quo kind of relationship with God. And Abraham was just, no, God, I will do whatever you say. I don't have God over a barrel. This is not a negotiating table. God is God. And so Abraham goes in obedience. Sometimes I wonder if, um, I I just wonder if if we in the American church can can even fathom that level of sacrifice. If we have not sort of, I'm speaking to myself here too, just imbibed so deeply the culture around us, which is all about our needs, our feelings, our desires, our dreams, and how dare anyone get in the way of what we want. You know, and so for God to ask us to give up something, you know, or even in other cases, for God to take something from us. You know, it's like something happens, God takes something away, and we fly into a rage. We're like, how could God do this? And we even have the temerity to get angry at God. I mean, how dare we get angry? We have no right to be angry with God. We have no grounds for anger with God. It's preposterous. And yet we do. We become angry with Him. How could you do this to me? You, you know, it's like, who are we talking to? And we have no concept of, of God and His sovereignty, that He owns us, that Isaac is His, that everything is His, that my life is His, that my health is His. Everything is a gift from Him. And we have such a sense of entitlement. I mean, that's just part of our culture. And so, as a, sort of as an American Christian, when I read about Abraham's faith, I just feel so kind of anemic and small in comparison. And I just think, do I really even know what it means to sacrifice and to really do what God says? I really wonder sometimes. It, it made me think of, um, I've, I've kind of uh, pandered this book around before, but uh, some of you have read it, and I'm always giving it a plug. It's called Cat and Dog Theology. I don't know if you read this book. Great little book. We have it downstairs at the bookstall. Actually, I just stole this one from the bookstall, so I'll bring it back down if you want to buy it. But um, it's a great book. And basically, I'll just give you the basic premise. You know, cats and dogs are really different. Uh, I've had both, you know, both pets. And dogs are like, you know, man's best friend. And cats are kind of, you know, emperors and empresses that we all serve. And and so the idea is that Christians have a cat theology and a dog theology sometimes. Dog theology, according to the book, goes like this. You love me. You take care of me, you feed me, you meet my needs, therefore you must be God. Cat theology says, you love me, you take care of me, you feed me, you meet my needs, therefore I must be God. (laughs) 
It's good, huh? Yeah. It's a good book. Abraham was a dog. You're God. And you have blessed me. You are amazing God. But if you want my son, everything is yours. You are God. I worship you. You are calling the shots here. Cat theology says, what? God wants what? <laughs> oh, no, no, that's not fair. That's not right. You always know the cats. Because when suffering comes, the cats are the, the gripers, the whiners, and the complainers against God. That's how you, that's how you sniff out a cat. What? <laughs> you know, not, not that, we, that suffering is ever easy, but, but they're the ones who are always throwing a fit. And it's like, what about God's sovereignty in our lives? What about humbling ourselves before Him? And I guess I just see way too much cat in myself to be, uh, to be at peace when I read this text. And I, I see Abraham and I say, how does he get there? And, and so let's look on. Let's see how Abraham gets to that place of that dog theology of saying, God, you are God and I sacrifice myself to you and anything you want. Verse 4, on the third day, so they take off on this journey, on the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I, go over, I and the boy go over there. We'll worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father. It's such a tender conversation. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham was going all the way. He was ready to obey God down to the horrible moment. But the angel of the Lord, verse 11, called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And sure enough, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This is one of the most dramatic moments in the Bible. Um, different artists have tried to paint this scene down through the, the years. Uh, I, I think one of my favorites is Rembrandt's, as I look at different ones. I think Rembrandt's is my favorite. I like Rembrandt anyway just because of the dramatic colors he uses, the, the light. You know, it, it's just very dramatic lighting and extremes, brightness and dark. And in this picture that Rembrandt paints, there's this old Abraham and his son is bound and, and sort of in a contorted, painful position. And you see Abraham's big hand covering his son's face. And so you, you can't even see Isaac's face in the portrait. It, and he's sort of cranking his son's neck back. And so kind of the, if you look at sort of the lines in the painting, they all sort of kind of point down toward the son's throat. 
and the light is brightest there on his throat. And there's Abraham with the knife going in to do this horrible deed. And at the last moment, you see this kind of cherubim-looking angel coming out of heaven, grabbing his arm. And in the painting, the hand is open and the knife is dropping. And so it's sort of captured in that moment. And Abraham is looking back, startled. And you realize in Rembrandt's painting and his rendition of it, he got this idea that Abraham was going to do it. He was going to do it. And if God hadn't just grabbed him at the last minute, it would have been over. The knife would have found its mark. And God says, I know now, I know that you will obey me because you have not withheld your own son. You truly fear God. And I look at that story and, and I just, again, I ask the question, how, how does one get there? How, do we, how did Abraham do that? Why was he willing to sacrifice everything? How did he get to that point? I just can't understand it. And the writer of Hebrews gives us the insight. If you go back to Hebrews now, it speaks of the motivation. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Here's why. Verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham reasoned, he logicked, he put it together that God could raise the dead. And you kind of get little hints of it in the story, don't you? You stay here with the donkey, says to the servants. We will go up on the mountain and worship, and then we will come back, he says to them. Isn't that interesting? Dad, where's the lamb? God will provide. And so there's inklings of faith in the story. But the bottom line is that Abraham, through a long journey of faith, had come to a place of knowing that he worshipped a good heavenly Father. He knew who God was. He had come to know how much God loved him. He knew how faithful God was. And because he, he had lived a life of walking with God like Enoch, when it came to this ultimate test that is beyond our comprehension, Abraham was ready, not because he was some super guy, but because he had learned who God was. He knew God. I love how uh, William Lane, the... Uh, who wrote a commentary on Hebrews, probably my favorite one in Hebrews, Lane puts it this way. He says, Abraham accepted what he could not understand on the basis of his own rich experience with God. So he could do the unthinkable and the not understandable because of what he had learned over all those years of faithfully following God. He had learned that God was faithful. That if God said it, God would do it. That God kept His Word. You know, we look at uh, you know, this Father's Day, we're thinking about our earthly fathers, and, and no earthly father is perfect. No earthly father is perfectly faithful. You know, earthly fathers let us down in so many ways. Then you become an earthly father, and then you let your kids down. You know, you just see it happen. Even the best fathers aren't perfect. You know, I was, just the other day, I was uh, thinking about this for myself. My, I was working on the computer, type, I think I was working on a sermon at, at home, my home office, and my little five year old guy, you know, shouts up the stairs, Dad, can you come down? You know, I want to, I forget, you know, do you want to read me a book or something? And I said, just a minute. It's typical, just a minute. And uh, I kept working it. And about a minute later, I hear, it's been a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, you know, when Dad, and, and I, I, th- I said to him, 
You know, when Dad says a minute, what he really means is wait. <laughs> and I'm like, lesson learned. Dad didn't mean a minute when Dad said a minute. And you're like, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, when God says a minute, God means minute. When God says, I will be here next year and you will have a child, then when next year comes, you'll have a child. Whatever God says, He does. He's faithful. He's not like us. He doesn't fail in any way. Some of us have been profoundly failed by fathers. But this Heavenly Father is faithful. He never fails. But not only is He faithful, He's powerful. He can do what He says. He's omnipotent. He's the King. You know, like we saw in chapter 18 last week where God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? You know, sometimes we make promises to kids and, and we tell them we're going to do things, but we just don't have the power to follow through on all the big promises we make. But if God makes a promise, God can carry it out. So Abraham, who could look up at the stars and say, my God and my Father made these. And Abraham, who could look at Isaac and say, my God and my Father have the power to give me a son when it was physically and humanly impossible. That same Abraham says, okay, if God tells me to kill Isaac, but God has also told me that through Isaac my offspring will be reckoned. Therefore, I guess God can even overcome death. Never seen it happen, but you know what? God can do anything. It, it wasn't based on anything except who He knew God to be. And so out of that lifetime, year after year of a faith journey, Abraham had come to see who God was. It was the knowledge of God's character and God's person that enabled him to pass that test. Because he was trusting who God was. And he was willing to lay it all down for God and say, God, it is all yours, even my son Isaac. And if you're going to fulfill this promise, well, you're just going to have to do a miracle like you've done before. That was his relationship with God. And so God, God met him there. God provided for him there. And he saw God once again faithful. This is who God is. And if, if we're going to be people who are willing to say, God, I'll do whatever you want, period. <laughs> if we can end the sentence there, the key is we have to know God. We have to know who He is and trust Him and know that He's good. And know that when we go through suffering or difficulty, or when God not even asks us to give up something, but just sometimes God just takes it, doesn't He? He doesn't even ask our permission. Things are taken. And we go, how can God take that? And to trust Him and say, I know, I don't understand why this is happening, but I know who You are. You are good. You love Me. You are faithful. You are powerful. You said all things are going to work together for good. I can't even begin to see how that would happen. But You're the God who raises the dead. You're the God who does that. I'm going to trust You through this. That is the life of faith in Abraham. And if Abraham had reason to trust God on that side of the cross... How much more reason do we have as Christians to trust the goodness of our Father on this side of the cross? We have Jesus. In fact, look at how this passage ends. I want to show you something that when I finally got my mind around this in my studying, I just was, you know, I was doing one of those no way kind of moments. It was just so amazing. Look at verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Then here's the second part of the sentence. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. From death. Okay, I, I want to retranslate that last little phrase, starting with "and figuratively speaking," because so I'm gonna, I want to do. You've got to bear with me for one minute here. I just need to do my little technical Greek thing. All right, 
but, but it's important here. Um, what it literally says in Greek is, and wherefore he did receive him in a parable. Which the NIV has translated, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from death. So first of all, that phrase from death at the end of verse 19, that's not in Greek. That's not even there. It's just, and even back is not there. So he did receive Isaac. And then see that phrase, figuratively speaking, is, is in Greek. It's in a parable. So another way you could translate it is, he did receive him in or as a parable, or as a prefigurement, or as a foreshadowing. So which is it? Which is it? And the way you know, you know, when you come to a translation issue like that, and you're trying to figure out what a word means, and a word could have different meanings, one of the key things you have to do in studying is say, how does the same author use the same word elsewhere in his writings? You know, how does the author tend to use that word? So you look in Hebrews. You say, does he use the word parable anywhere else? And you find out there's one other place in Hebrews he uses the word parable. It's back in chapter 9, verse 9. This is an... Chapter 9, verse 9 is the same Greek word. This is an... There's the word parabole, translated here in NIV illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. It's an illustration. Or, so, so without going into a, a re-exposition of all of chapter 9, if you remember this chapter, I don't know if you do or not, we studied it before, but basically what the author of Hebrews is saying was that the Old Testament tabernacle with the outer court and the inner court was an illustration or a prefigurement or a foreshadowing of the Old Testament age, which was the outer court, and the New Testament age, which was the inner court. So he was saying, so he's using the word to be a typology or a foreshadowing. Which leads me to conclude, going back to Hebrews 11, that when he says, you got Isaac back, figuratively speaking, what he's really saying is, you got, he got Isaac as a prefigurement, a typology. He didn't just get his son back, he got a foreshadowing of something that was coming. It was, it was a prefigurement. I, I much prefer here the, the old King James which I think gets it better. King James says, According, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. I even like better the New American Standard Bible, which of all the Bible, English translations, New American Standard is the most literal, probably the least readable, but the most literal. So that kind of goes, usually the more readable it gets, the less literal it is, and the more literal it gets, the less readable it is. So here's the NASB, which I think is just right on. It says, He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which He also received Him back as a type. A type. A prefigurement. Where one thing is sort of a foreshadowing of a future thing. So in receiving Isaac, in, in Isaac coming down off that mountain, Abraham was getting a little picture of something that God was going to do in the future, is what the text is saying. Which is so amazing. So what was it foreshadowing? What was it looking forward to? Of course, the sacrifice of Christ. You know, you know, you look at this story and you're like, God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son? There's nothing like that in the Bible. Oh yeah, that's right. There's one other thing like that in the Bible. That that's why God had Abraham do this. Not just as a test, but, but it was, it's unique in the Old Testament because it alone it foreshadows in such a dramatic way what God the Father would do sacrificing His own Son. His one and only Son, whom He loved. 
The difference, of course, being that whereas God told Abraham to stop, the father did not stop. But he let his son be crucified for our sins. Is this not the great message of Hebrews? Is this not the the great sort of theme right in the center of Hebrews, starting at chapter 7, going all the way through chapter 10? Sort of the, the beating heart at the center of Hebrews is that Jesus is our sacrifice for our sins. Go back to chapter 11, or chapter 9 again. Let me give you one for instance. Let's just go back down memory lane. We've read these passages before. Look at verses 11 to 14. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not by uh, not a part of this creation. So Jesus is the high priest. He goes to the heavenly temple, not an earthly temple. And then verse 12, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood. So He's not only the high priest, He's also the sacrificial lamb having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they're only outwardly clean. Sacrificing an animal can't actually forgive your sins. It's just kind of a ceremony. How much more, verse 14 then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Jesus was sacrificed so that we could be forgiven. I mean, God has done such a great thing for us. And you know, I think the greatest thing about this gospel message that that God has sacrificed Jesus for us, the thing that really is kind of stirring, the center of the gospel. Think of the gospel as like a Cinnabon. You guys like Cinnabons? I'm getting hungry. the, The gospel is so good. It is so enticing. But within the Cinnabon, there is the center. And you eat the Cinnabon around with the goal of getting to the gooey, almost uncooked, doughy center. Do you know what what the doughy center of the Gospel is? The thing that makes, at the core of it, that makes the Gospel so mouth-watering to the soul. It's the fact that God was completely unobligated to do anything to save us. That's what makes the Gospel so amazing. That God went to this extravagant length of sacrificing His own Son to save rebels, but He had no obligation to do it. Would you think about that? If God had let the whole world burn, He would have been justified. God only has one obligation toward you. There's only one thing that God owes you. There's only one thing that God has to do to be a consistent, fair, and just God. Send you to hell. That's it. The only thing God owes us is a curse, a judgment, wrath, condemnation, and eternal fury. That's all He owes you. That's all you have earned with your rebellious life against God. That's all I've earned with my rebellious life against God. You know, I'm ungrateful and I don't worship Him and I don't love my neighbor. The only thing that God is legally obligated to give you, you know, you want to play contract with God? There's only one thing in the contract. Judgment. We have earned nothing but His condemnation. And so to realize that and to think, in spite of that, what did He give us? His Son. 
He gave us His Son. And His Son absorbed everything that I deserve, that the contract was put on Christ's head, and that God expressed His hatred of sin by allowing His precious, beloved Son in my place. It's amazing. And it just brings you to your knees. That is the gooey center of the Gospel. That it was an unobligated gift of His Son to His enemies, to rebels, to those who hate Him and His ways. To people who would shake their fists and say, I'm mad at you, God! Like, who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? But rather than chiding us or chastising us, He says, I'm going to send My Son and He's going to take care of it all and He's going to reconcile you to Me Oh, I mean, it just it, it blows you over and we're broken down before His grace and we respond in worship. It's amazing what God has done. What is keeping you from the gift of eternal life? God has given His Son for you. Will you really say no? <laughs> Will you really say, I'm all set? <laughs> you know, Really? If you reject Christ, what is there left? What is there left? There's nothing left. And what more can God do? What more would He do? What more should He do? He's done it all. As Christians then, when we think about giving up something for God, and we look at what God has given up for us, have we ever really made a sacrifice? <laughs> You think about anything we've gone through for Christ. Have we really ever made a sacrifice? You know, it's like, if, if I were to give up my life, if God were to call me to go to some foreign place where the health care isn't good and I died at age 50 because of conditions there instead of age 80 where I would have lived here with all the medical advances we have, have I really given up anything considering that God has already given me His Son, that God has promised me eternal life, that God says, I am with you, that God says, even if you suffer from me, I will bear great fruit out of your suffering. And I think I'm giving up something for God? You know, Christians don't give up anything. They just receive. Every time we give up something for God, He like, you know, pours out a blessing and says, okay, I'm going to give you this. We never give up anything. He has done the work. And so, brothers and sisters, let us strive to be like Abraham. Not in our own strength, because I'll never get there on my own. I'm, just too, I'm still too cat. But I need to focus on Jesus and say, look what God has done for me. Giving His only Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Lay down your life. Lay it all down for Christ. Trust Him and obey Him joyfully, knowing that any sacrifice in this world will be repaid a hundredfold in heaven because nobody can outgive God. Let's pray. I just invite you just to take this time of uh, silence and we'll, let's just take two minutes, a minute or two of silence here. And would you just spend time praying to God? Maybe just thanking Him. Maybe just humbling your heart before Him. Maybe, maybe you need to cry out for Christ and, and receive the gift of eternal life and, and turn to Jesus as your Savior. 
But let's just spend a few moments just worshiping God and thanking Him on this Father's Day for the great Father that He has been to us. Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You for how much You loved us. Thank You, God, that even when we do get mad and shake our fists, Your Son continues to pursue us. That You overcome our sin by Your love. Thank You, God, that even when we stray, even when we get full of ourselves, You keep coming for us. That, God, You have hunted us down and embraced us in Christ. We love You. And and we just pray, God, that, that You would enable us this week to stay centered in Your love. And that, Lord, we would be willing to do anything for you because we know that that you have given us everything already. Lord, help us to treasure Jesus more than anything in this world. Help us to be willing to lay down our egos, our agendas, our jobs, our rights, our claims, our supposed claims. Help us, Lord, to just lay it all down before you and to, to be filled up with love for Christ. Oh, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to work in us. We thank you for how much you love us and that you're committed to seeing us through to the end, no matter how much we may kick and scream. Lord, keep working in us. Don't give up on us, your people. And thank you that we have confidence that you'll see us through to the final day. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name, our Savior. Amen.